Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Back in 2014, young, restless, and reformed pastor Mark Driscoll was terminated from his church. It was one of the fastest growing churches in America at that time, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Mark Driscoll. He was accused of plagiarism on seven of his books, and that turned out to be true. He used church funds to buy his way onto the New York Times bestseller with his book, Real Marriage, to basically inflate the sales numbers. And that book, Real Marriage, is a controversial book. It has some things in there that denigrate women. He also told his church that they were going to raise money for this big overseas mission project. And so people began giving to overseas missions, and then they kept the money locally in Seattle. And so they had to bring in an outside consultant. Many of you have probably heard of author and pastor Paul David Tripp. Well, he was brought in as a consultant, and he said this about Mars Hill Church. He said, this is without a doubt the most abusive coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. So over the next few months, 20 former elders and staff members came and brought allegations against Mark Driscoll. They accused him of being a bully. Word got out that he would shame other elders. He would cuss out other elders in elders meetings. He was a bully. He would throw his weight around. He was very combative. And finally, He resigned, being forced out. Basically, they concluded as elders, as the church board, that Mark was guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper, harsh speech, and leading the staff and elders in a domineering manner. Now, Mark Driscoll has a famous sermon. It's called the Bus Sermon. Basically, what he said, and you can go back and listen to the sermon, he basically said, I'm the driver, as as the pastor, I'm the driver of the bus. The bus is going this direction. You as church members need to get on the bus. If you don't get on the bus and head where I'm driving, I'm going to run over you. And he says, I've backed up and run over a lot of people. As you can go behind the church and there's a lot of dead bodies of people that did not want to get on the bus and follow where we're leading. So that's his attitude towards his church. And so it saddens me to see what happened to Mark Driscoll. It saddens me to see what happens when pastors get isolated, begin puffed up with pride, can become arrogant all at the congregation's expense. And so when you see pastors go off the rails, whether it's moral failure, whether it's embezzling funds, whether it's abusive behavior, whatever type of egregious sin it is, when you see pastors and leaders go off the rails, it makes us all stop and ask a very important question, a key question. What exactly is a good pastor? Or to ask it more specifically, what is a good servant of Christ Jesus? 
How do you measure faithfulness in your spiritual leaders? And let's ask it more personally. How do you measure faithfulness in your own life? How would you identify yourself as a good servant of Christ? Not just your pastors and your leaders, but you personally. And so last week, as we jumped into chapter 4, Paul warned us to anticipate and avoid the demonic dangers of false teaching. He said, many will fall away from the faith. We're living in the last times. There's going to be demonic teachings. We need to be aware of that. And now Paul shifts his attention directly to Timothy, this young pastor, and is going to give instructions to Timothy directly as the pastor, but by extension, these instructions are for all of us as believers. So Paul's addressing Timothy specifically as the pastor, but these teachings apply to all of us as believers in Christ. So let's read together, picking up where we left off last week. If you've got your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's look at verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So from this passage of Scripture, Paul gives three descriptions of a faithful servant, a faithful pastor, and by extension, a faithful follower of Christ, a faithful Christian. So what are these three descriptions? Well, here's the first. A good servant teaches sound doctrine. A good servant teaches sound doctrine. Now, under this big heading, Paul gives three ways that Timothy is going to be a good servant by teaching sound doctrine here's the first you see it right there in verse six if you put these things before the brothers if you put these things before the brothers now it makes us ask a question what are these things that timothy's to put before brothers and sisters in christ well it could be what he just talked about in verses one through five or it could be everything he's talked to up at this point in the letter to first timothy i think you can take it either way But what's important to me is to understand that word. If you put these things, or if you point out these things, here's what that word means. It's a very interesting word in the original language. It means to teach by sticking your neck out and risking doing so. To be bold and courageous when you teach, you're sticking your neck out. It means that a good pastor is not afraid to confront error or to refute heresy. A good pastor serves the congregation by stepping on toes. Now, I know you don't want your toes stepped on, but sometimes a pastor has to do that. 
A pastor must address difficult topics, not shy away from controversy. A pastor, metaphorically, has to stick his neck out on the chopping block and address things that the text tells us we must address in order to be a good shepherd, a good pastor. And I'm afraid that many pastors in our nation have become timid over the past few years. They're more concerned with being winsome to please the culture instead of standing on the truth. Many pastors worry about losing people. If I say these things, I'm going to lose people. If I say these things, the giving's going to go down. If I say these things, I'm going to get bad press. If I say these things, I may be labeled a bigot or intolerant. And so I'm not going to say what needs to be said. Aaron Rim has written an excellent article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Now, I don't agree with necessarily everything he says, but he basically says that from 19, like before 1994, these dates are a little bit artificial, but he says before 1994 in America, Christianity was positive. We lived in a positive culture that was positive towards Christianity. There was a Judeo-Christian ethic. Christianity was a, po- a net positive in culture pre-1994. Then he says from 1994 to 2014, Christianity was neutral. It was neither good nor bad in the culture. It was just neutral. Christians were kind of allowed to exist. It wasn't a positive. It wasn't a negative. It was neutral. But then he said around 2015, with the passing of Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court decision to make gay marriage the legal, legal in the land, he said now we live in a negative world where Christianity is viewed as negative. So it is a negative in our world today to be a Christian. And here's what he writes. He says, society has become to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. I don't need to tell you this, but the culture will get more and more hostile to Christian truths. So we can choose to compromise. We can choose to acquiesce. We can choose to bury our heads in the sand. Or we can choose to stand for the truth in an increasingly secular culture, knowing that that culture hates us. So one of the good ways that a pastor teaches sound doctrine is to stick his neck out on the chopping block to promote truth and to refute error, even at personal sacrifice. Now, under this big heading of of teaching sound doctrine, that's number one. Uh, Under this big heading, the second thing is a good servant teaches sound doctrine by himself being nourished in the truth. You see that word there in verse 6, being trained. I don't know what your translation says, but the ESV says being trained. It really means to be nourished, to constantly be feeding yourself on God's Word, to constantly be nourished by the truth of God's Word. It reminds me of what Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So let me just ask you a question. Do you see the Word of God as food for your soul? It is your sustenance. It is your nourishment. You are constantly feeding on God's Word. As a pastor, I must nourish myself on God's word so that when I stand up here, I can feed you what I myself have been fed on this past week. But it's not just for pastors to be nourished and trained in God's word. You must nourish and train yourself in God's word so that you can know that what I'm saying is the truth or any Christian teacher is the truth. Think about Acts 17, 10 through 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you examine the scriptures daily? Do you nourish yourself on God's word? Do you feed on God's word as food for your soul? The third thing we see here under this big heading of teaching sound doctrine is at the end of verse 6. Being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. You've followed sound doctrine. The original word means you've followed it with consistency. You've followed it with perseverance. You're continually following God's word. Now remember how Timothy had learned the scriptures. Who did Timothy learn the Bible from? His mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he also learned it from Paul himself. And so basically, when Paul came to the town of Lystra in Acts chapter 16 on his first missionary journey, he recruited Timothy. And so Paul's basically saying to Timothy, you need to keep following the word of God that you learned from your mother, your grandmother, from me. Be persistent in following those sound words, that sound doctrine." 1 Timothy 6, we'll get this this in a few weeks. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that, succeed, that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. So the first mark of a good servant of Jesus Christ is that he teaches sound doctrine and by extension you as a christian hold to sound doctrine listen to sound doctrine want to sit under sound doctrine you you want faithful teaching so all christians must hold fast to the truth of god's word now let me just stop and say a word of thank you i've been here 18 years over 18 years now and i want to personally thank you for your willingness to sit under sound doctrine week in and week out. There's many places you could go, and there are places where you could go to have your ears tickled to hear what you want to hear, but you keep coming back and listening to God's Word. And for that, I want to thank you. But I also want you to pray for me, because as we continue to stand on God's Word, I will continually stick my neck out and say things that you may not like and say things the culture may not like. And so we need to have courage, clarity, and conviction 
as your spiritual leaders. It's going to get harder and harder to have those things in a world that stands hostile to us. So please pray for me as your pastor. Pray for Pastor Dustin. Pray for our elders that we would be men of courage, clarity, and conviction as we lead you into the truth of God's Word. So mark number one of a good servant is he teaches sound doctrine. Here's the second mark. A good servant trains for godliness. He not only teaches for sound doctrine, but he trains for godliness. Now, we see this here in verse 7. Paul says, avoid, have nothing to do with, refute irreverent silly myths, uh, these profane, ungodly, false teachings that are circulating around. Uh, This was really how he starts the letter back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, these false teachers are teaching false things. They're teaching myths. Now, remember, Timothy's living in the city of Ephesus. You've got the temple of Artemis there. You've got all these false Greek gods and goddesses. You go back to Acts chapter 19. You find out it's a place where there's a lot of magic arts. There's, there's like a lot of magic books. So there's, there's black magic. There's, there's gods and goddesses. There's weird Jewish philosophies. All these things are coming into the church. And Paul says, listen, Timothy, ignore that, refute that, avoid that. And instead... Train yourself. Keep on training yourself. This word train is the Greek word, and you'll know, you'll, know, you'll know the English word when I say the Greek word. Gymnazo. Go to the gym. We get the word gymnastics. It's from the Olympics. It means to exert physical training, ongoing training, like an Olympic athlete in godliness. Paul uses this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should not be disqualified. So, let me be very clear. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We're not saved by works. But, after we're saved, we are called to grow in this process of being more like Jesus. We're to train ourselves. 2 Timothy 4.17, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've, I've kept the faith. The Christian life is a life of fight and struggle and warfare and training. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so not, now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation. Remember, we're saved by grace. Work out. This is just another way of saying train yourself for godliness. Work out your salvation. And here's the beauty of what happens. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you're training yourself for godliness, when you're living for Jesus, you can have the assurance that God works in you. He gives you the desire to do that. He gives you the power to do that. So this is not willpower. This is not legalism. This is not like self-effort. This is Holy Spirit-empowered grace to help you train yourself for godliness, which brings up a great question. What exactly is godliness? That's kind of a Christianese word we use like. He's, He's a godly man. 
He's a God-fearing man. You need to be godly. Well, what is godliness? It's kind of a word we throw around. What is godliness? Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We have been predestined to look like Jesus. Our goal in the Christian life is to look more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed to look more and more like Jesus. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will begin to look like Jesus. Let me say that again. The more you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. So godliness is fixing your eyes on Jesus, seeking Him, longing for Him, desiring Him. This is how we started out the worship service this morning with Psalm 16.8. Listen to the psalmist. I have set the Lord always before me because He's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I've always set the Lord before me. I'm setting the Lord before me. I'm keeping my eyes on the Lord. He's my priority. He's my preoccupation. And here's my question for you. Are you setting the Lord always before you? Are you keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you being nourished by His Word? Are you being transformed by the renewal of your mind? So what is godliness? There, there's a lot of things that involve in godliness. It means, it means having a good conscience as opposed to a seared conscience we talked about last week. It's having a healthy fear of God instead of man-pleasing or, or giving in to peer pressure or having a fear of men. Godliness is calling upon the Lord in faith instead of pursuing your own selfish ambitions. You see, what do we seek the most in our lives if we're really honest with ourselves? We want the applause of others. We want to be well-liked. We want people to, to flock to us, to notice us, to look at us. We want the applause of men. That's the exact opposite of godliness. Godliness means we want to serve the living God. New Testament scholar Robert or William Mount says this. He defines godliness this way. A life totally consecrated to God carrying an emphasis that this life is observable to others. It is an unhindered pursuit of God's purposes. In other words, you can, you can boil godliness down to this. In our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds, we seek to glorify God above all. Now, one of my favorite Puritans is Thomas Watson. And he's written a really good, accessible book. It's a Puritan paperback. It's called The Godly, the Godly Man's Picture. The Godly Man's Picture. I encourage you to go get it. He defines, in, in a lot of words, what godliness looks like in a person. What, what is Christian character? What is godliness? And he, he gives some ideas here. He basically says godliness is, is, is a matter of the heart. It's not externals. Godliness is something supernatural that the Holy Spirit produces within you godliness is intense it's vigorous it's flaming it's not dead moralism uh, psalm 63 8 says my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me it's it's a clinging to god and it's permanent 
So let me just ask you a question. How do you grow in godliness? I'll let you figure that one out. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, no, don't do that. Let me give you some suggestions on how you can today grow in godliness. First, remember that the primary reason God created you was for godliness. That's why God created you. For his glory. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 43, 6-7, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created for God's glory. So remember, first and foremost, you were created for God's glory. You were created for godliness. That's why you exist. That your ultimate purpose in life is godliness to glorify God. Okay, number two, make sure you don't fall in love with this world. You want to grow in godliness? Don't fall in love with this world. Russell read this earlier during our time of confession, but let me just read it again. 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All uh, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't fall in love with this world. Set your affections on Christ and His glory. Okay, third suggestion. Constantly fill your mind with godly truths psalm 119 is a very interesting psalm when i think on my ways i turn my feet to your testimonies when i think on my ways i turn my feet to your testimonies now what's he saying here when you think about when you meditate on god's truth you begin to have a life that pursues him but oftentimes the godly life starts in your mind before it starts in your actions. If your mind is filled with the things of God, if your mind is filled with godly truths, then your life will catch up. Okay? Your life will, will, will be impacted by what you put into your mind. So constantly fill your mind with godly truths. And the fourth is very close to that. Keep a close watch on your heart. What does your heart long for? What is your heart drawn to? Where, does you, where do you find yourself imagining? What do you crave? Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep a guard on your heart. Watch your heart. You see, true godliness comes from an overflow of a heart that's been captivated by Christ. Of a mind that's been filled with the truth of Christ knowing that you're created for the glory of Christ, that you're not in love with the world, but you're longing for Jesus. Okay, fifth, keep reminding yourself how short this life is compared to eternity. I'm not going to ask you a personal question, but I am, but you don't have to answer it. How much time do you waste on maybe good stuff? But how much time in a day do you waste on things that aren't eternal? 
Our life is like a vapor. Listen to what Psalm 39.5 says. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Life is short. Do you want to pursue godliness, or do you want to pursue trivial things? And then sixth, spend most of your time around other godly people who can encourage you. You cannot grow in godliness in a vacuum isolated by yourself. You grow in godliness when you're surrounded by those that can encourage you. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Let me say it this way. Whoever walks with the godly will become godly. You will become like who you hang around with. So we must train ourselves for godliness. John Calvin said this, For godliness alone is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. The beginning, middle, and end. Godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, Paul says there's good physical advantages of, of like physical training. You know, you want to exercise, you want to lift weights, you want to do CrossFit, cardio, sports. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But notice what he says about training yourself for godliness. Notice what he says there. Verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. And then verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now there's some argument here. What's the trustworthy saying? Is it verse 8 or is it verse 10? Is Paul introducing what he's about to say as the trustworthy statement and he's going to tell us in verse 10 that is the trustworthy statement or is he referring back to what he just said in verse 8? I'll tell you where I land on it. I think verse 8 is the godly, or verse 8 is the trustworthy statement. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but I think what he's saying is this. Here's the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You go back and see what he just said. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What he's basically saying is a spiritual blessing for you to pursue godliness. You will never regret the time and energy you spend in training yourself for godliness. It will be a blessing to you, not only in this life, but the life to come. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you diligently training yourself for godliness? Are you pursuing godliness? The way you'd go work out at the gym is some intensity, some regularity, some consistency. All right, let's look at the third mark of a good servant. First of all, a good servant, what? Teaches, sound doctrine. A good servant trains for godliness. But here's the third. A good servant toils for the salvation of sinners. Notice what Paul says there. He toils. Verse 10, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. To this end, what's the end that Paul toils and strives? What's Paul, why is Paul working so hard? Why, why is Paul doing this ministry? Why is Paul expending so much effort? What, what end? Well, it's the end to see salvation of sinners, to see sinners place their faith in Christ and come to that saving faith. And notice the words Paul uses, to toil. 
This means to, to be wearied from hard work, to like beat your breast because you've been working so hard. And the word agonize, the word strive is where we get our word agonize in the English. It means to fight like an Olympic event. And so the two words together here, to strive and to toil, mean that being a pastor is hard work. It involves effort. It involves toil. It involves agony. It's a struggle that involves endurance. My life verse as a pastor, this happened many, many years ago, probably back in, I say, probably around 2001, 2002. I spent time on a personal retreat, and I just spent time saying, Lord, what, what is it that you want me to give my life to? as a young pastor, as a, as a youth pastor at the time. And I was drawn to Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and this is my ministry verse. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim. That means we preach Jesus. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and here's the goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's my goal. To preach, teach, and lead in such a way as to present everyone mature in Christ. But notice what Paul says in verse 29. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Pastoring is hard work. We spend a lot of time in prayer. We spend a lot of time in counseling. We spend a lot of time in meetings. We spend a lot of time strategizing, prayer, sermon prep, dealing with difficult church members, dealing with difficult deacons and elders. No, I'm just joking. We're dealing dealing with all these things. And we spend time sharing the gospel with unsaved people. But notice what Paul says. In all this toil, in all this training, in all of this agony, notice the wording he says in verse 10. We have set our hope on the living God. Original language, we have firmly, resolutely set our hope on the living God. It's not a hopeless task. It's a living hope in a living God. First Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's this hope? The hope is that people will believe in Jesus. Notice how Paul ends it there in verse 10. We set our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now you may be like, that sounds weird. He's the Savior of all people, but only those who believe. Well, which one is it, Paul? He's the Savior of all people, or is he the Savior of people that believe? Is it basically saying there's two ways of salvation? There's salvation for all people, universalism, everyone's going to heaven, but there's a second type of salvation for all who believe. You, you have to kind of dig into the original language, and I don't want to bore you with that, but that word especially can also mean precisely, or that is. Basically, Paul could be defining or giving more definition to the point that you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. So here's Paul's point. Paul's point is this. You have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. There is no salvation outside of personal trust in Christ alone as your Savior. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says this, For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The only way you can be delivered from the wrath to come, the only way you can be saved from hell is if you turn from sin and turn toward Jesus. So think about it this way. This wall back here, is your life of sin. So you're walking in sin, you're following sin, you're following the world, you're following idolatry. When you turn from that, that means to repent, you're turning from that. When you turn from that, you're turning toward faith in Christ. So repentance is turning from your sins. Faith is turning to Christ and receiving Him. And there's no salvation outside of Jesus. You cannot be saved unless you personally trust in Jesus. So who's a good servant of Christ Jesus? Well, it's one who teaches sound doctrine, one who trains for godliness, and one who toils for the salvation of sinners. And by the way, that's my job description as your pastor. This defines ministry faithfulness for myself, Pastor Dustin, and our elders. But it also defines faithfulness for your life. So let me ask it more personally way. Do you submit yourself to sound teaching? Do you personally train yourself for godliness? Do you actively share the gospel with sinners? Now, there's no such thing as a perfect servant of Christ. No such thing as a perfect pastor. If you're looking for one, go down the street because he ain't here. There's no such thing as a perfect servant. We're always going to sin We're always going to fall short. Our best efforts are going to be stained with sin. So that's why we all, pastors, all of us, need the greatest servant, Jesus. He's the only true good servant of Christ, Christ himself. Think about it this way. Jesus is the ultimate teacher of sound doctrine. He never gets it wrong. We must listen to him. Jesus did not need to train himself for godliness because he was God in the flesh, perfect in every way. He's the embodiment of godliness. And Jesus toiled, did he not? Jesus suffered and agonized, did he not? For the salvation of sinners. Not in evangelism, but in his death on the cross. If there was anyone that agonized or toiled or suffered, it was Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. For sinners, excruciatingly painful. So Jesus is the ultimate teacher of sound doctrine. He's the ultimate embodiment of godliness. And he's the one that toiled to the end to save us by his death on the cross. So we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. And what I want us to do as we come to the Lord's Supper, it's how we started the service It's how we end the service. It's that one passage of Scripture. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. There's a lot of things in this life that can shake you. There's a lot of things in this life that can get you down. There's a lot of things in life that can come at you. But the one thing you can trust is that Jesus is at your right hand. He is your Savior. He's your Lord. So let's set Him ever before us.
Let's keep our eyes fixed on him. As we take the supper together, let us receive the grace that comes from Christ alone as he meets us here as our great Savior. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we want to be good servants. We want to hold fast to sound doctrine. We want to train ourselves for godliness and we want to toil for the salvation of of sinners and lord we know that oftentimes that's very difficult and we're sinners and we struggle and so as we come to your table this morning help us to not look at ourselves and our weaknesses and our failures but help us to always set you before us lord jesus as we come to your supper this morning help us to fix our eyes upon you help us to listen to you Help us to worship you. Help us to receive grace and sustenance from you. Help us to be empowered by you. You're the greatest servant that ever lived. The greatest agony that was ever experienced, the greatest toil, the greatest striving that was ever experienced was your death on the cross. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, and we need you. So would we in these moments ever set you before us in our hearts and in our minds as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as your people. And we ask this in your name, Jesus.